Thank you, Peter and Amy Beth. Can we give them a round of applause for reading this stuff week after week? It's like, would you want to read that in front of the church? They just have done a wonderful job. Thank you guys for sharing your gift. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Scott. Uh, joined today with my wife, who will be preaching with us. This is Heather's son. Heather, um, we've been married 18 years. We have four kids here, a fifth in heaven, which is part of our story. Heather's a marriage and family therapist who uh, has a practice in Edmonds called Navigate Family Therapy. She literally is an expert at helping people navigate healthy relationships. And as we come to the end of Song of Solomon to preach chapter 8, I've asked Heather to share from her expertise today, uh, teaching what does the Bible have to, to give us, to, to teach us how to have better relationships. And so Heather and I uh, have a passion around building up Christian marriage and relationship. We teach seminars. This is kind of a joy to have you join me on stage today. Thank you for joining us. And uh, I want to pray, and then we'll begin. Father God, thank you so much for the chance to be together as your church. We pray that the words of Scripture would come alive today. Mm-hmm. Lord, give us grace and wisdom, uh, peace, and open our ears and our hearts that we would all, Lord, in every, in every relationship, Lord, that we would be able to glorify you. We know that we come to this room this morning, uh, long-time married or single, recently divorced or even widowed. Lord, we're all over the map on our earthly relationships, but may this word of Scripture encourage us all to seek you, God, and to love others well. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. SOS number eight, help me love through better relationships. There's a joke uh, taught or told in my family about church clothes. Uh, I was a little guy raised in a Baptist church. We dressed up to go to church, which isn't bad. A lot of uh, people, someone reminded me in the first service, hey, I love getting dressed up to go and worship God, and that's beautiful. For me, growing up, I had to put on a suit. There was a time I had this orange polyester suit. I'm no more than five years old, probably four and a half years old, and it's kind of a famous story because I hated getting dressed up. So I put this suit on me and a tie, going to the Baptist church, and then I said this. I said, if God wanted me to wear polyester, he would have had me be born in polyester. And apparently, <laughs> at four and a half, I talked like a New York gangster, which is... <laughs> Cool, uh, but that's just my family always laughs about that. I hated it. I hated getting dressed up for church. Why do we have to get dressed up to go to church? Now, mm-hmm. uh, we are in a community now. We understand that the way you dress is whatever is comfortable for you. It doesn't define you. But this illustration of getting dressed up to go to church, it's kind of like putting on our church clothes when there's other stuff going on. kind of ties into our theme today. Yeah, our theme today ties perfectly into this illustration that, you know, sometimes we can look really good on the outside. We can be really put together. A a friend blogger of mine will say, you know, don't be be fooled by my lipstick and earrings. I I look together when I have my lipstick and earrings on, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm all put together. Um, You know, and I grew up in Spokane. I uh, am proud of that heritage. Uh, You know, good things come from Spokane. I met Scott at Whitworth University over there. And um, when I think of my Spokane roots, there's something that I love about that is there's a a few more country music lovers over there in Spokane. And so when, you know, summer comes, I'm putting on the country music because there's something joyful about it. Uh, You know, there's family, there's beer often. It's just lighthearted. It's about, you know, some good uh, fun, it seems like. And, And lately when I've been listening to the country music station, there's this song that some of you may have heard called My Church Clothes, called Church Clothes. 
And um, we're going to look at some lyrics here, but it talks about getting ready for church. And as this couple is getting ready for church, she's talking about what she's putting on. And her, her dress is long enough, and her sweater is just so. And she's thinking about her appearance as she's getting ready to go to church. And then we jump into the middle here, and she's saying they get in the car, and she says, you drive, and I look out the window. It's not right, but nobody said so. We walk in and head to the same pew. And hold hands just like we're supposed to. But last night, you slept on the sofa. And these days, I don't even know you. We fight like hell, but nobody knows when we're wearing our church clothes. And that just breaks my heart. Because how often have we been in that position? All of us. Where we might look like we're put together. And we might intentionally put ourselves together to go out, to be in the world. But really inside we're hurting. And we've got some heartache. My little one, who is seven, was getting ready for church this morning. And she came in and saw that I was wearing a dress and said, Do I need to wear a dress? Do I need to dress up? It's church. Can I wear my t-shirt? Can I wear my shorts? And I said, Sweetie, at our church, you get to wear whatever you want. There's no dressing up. I would like to wear a dress today. I'm doing some speaking. If you want to wear a dress, you can too. But you can wear your shirts and your short. You can wear whatever sounds good to you because what we want to be here is a genuine community. We want to be a community where we don't feel like we have to dress up to put on an image for one another. And so in these scriptures today, what's so beautiful is we're given a guide for how to be in relationship and how to do relationships well. And so I hope, we hope, that we can draw some encouragement from these four postures that we're going to learn about today. And if you've been coming at all, you know this is a pretty familiar theme, but how we love each other reveals a lot of how we love God and how we receive God's love. And, we, you know, if you are somebody that says you love and follow God, but you treat other people horribly, the witness isn't sound. We are called to have a vertical and horizontal understanding of our relationship with God. Vertical. God loves me even in my sin and has called me his own when I confess my sin and name Jesus as my personal Savior. And then horizontally lived out that I am meant to be a vessel of love and grace and mercy. So my relationships should bear witness that the cross is alive and changing me. Amen? Our relationship mm-hmm. should bear witness, and none of us are perfect, none of us, even ones with microphones on our hands. No one gets it right all the time, but we're trying to live into this. And so this is our big idea today as we wrap up Song of Psalms, as we, as we look at every verse of chapter 8, is that this, this healthy love, better relationships that will, in your dating life, or your engaged life, or your married life, or I was married life, whatever it is, healthy relationships through the scripture, there's these four postures of love. Four, if you think about physical postures... Four postures of love in Song of Solomon that love heals and love commits and, and love uh, leans and mm-hmm. love awaits. We're going to get into mm-hmm. all of that. But the big idea is this, that these postures of love reflect what God has done for me and now I want to love others well. Let's look at the first point of our outline, that healthy love, healthy love leans, that love leans. Now this is the epilogue. Chapter 8 is almost the, the kind of end of of Song of Solomon, and you look at the first four verses of Song of Solomon 8. If you were to me like a brother, she says, who was nursed to my mother's breast, then if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. No shame. There's this longing. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house. She was taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it desires. And that verse 4 we've taught upon. That's kind of a theme that's come out about four times in the whole of Song of Solomon. But healthy love leans. Now, this is a beautiful picture in chapter 8 of affection without being erotic. 
There's a lot of sensuality and sexuality in Song of Solomon. It's beautiful. God put it here in the Bible. God gave us our bodies. We are meant to be sexual beings, but in the right, in the right construct. And, and here in chapter 8, there's affection without anything erotic. They actually don't touch each other in chapter 8. It's the most G-rated of all of the chapters. It's just saying that here at the end, healthy relationship is about healthy friendship and the ability to really lean on each other and being dependent on one another, that this is what healthy love looks like. Oftentimes people ask me, well, I want to have a good, I want to have a good Christian marriage. And I say, well, open up Ephesians 5. Because in this discussion that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 5, it says, women serve your husbands and husbands serve your wives like Christ served the church by giving his life. That in Christian marriage, in Christian relationship, it's not a 50-50 proposition. No, it's 100%. The way that Christ loved me, I want to love you. It's this, it's this leaning. It's that healthy love is saying, I'm not going to reserve anything. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to honor you. And that's lifted up here in Song of Solomon 8. There's no consummation, nothing again sensual. It's just healthy love really leans on one another. And when you think about this posture of leaning, you think about the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John. And if you need a reminder this morning about God's good love story for you, open up 1 John, because you can't read 1 John without just feeling like, oh yeah, dearly beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. We are loved from God. Amen? So John is the, is the writer, he's the one who Jesus loves, and in the book of John, the Last Supper, John 13, John has this picture of, of leaning on Christ, where he has seen Christ do amazing things. Christ has healed people, he has calmed storms, he is, he is the heaven of, he is the king of heaven come down, the, the, uh, this power there, and yet there's a picture in John 13 of John leaning on Christ's chest. Mm-hmm. That's such a picture of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Like you follow Jesus do you lean on him? Are you able to actually rest in your relationship with him? And it's important for us that, that we build love stories that can really lean on one another. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of a story of when we were at Costco one day, um, family with four kids. We are at Costco often. You might run into us there. And I was there one day with just my oldest son, Kincaid. And, um, you know, in life, as we're busy and, you know, one of those active families, I try to capture time with, uh, you know, my kiddos whenever I can. And so after our Costco run, he and I were sharing a slice of pizza and just chatting. And um, as I was, you know, sitting behind him and watching people go through the checkout from behind him, I saw this couple And they looked like they were um, probably in their 80s, I would guess, uh, an elderly couple. And as they were coming through the line with far less groceries than we had, and just, you could tell, just a few selected items, um, they were walking together. And what I noticed was that the man was having a tough time walking. And from behind him, his wife was just holding his arm. She was holding from behind and and definitely giving him support as he walked through the line. And what was so lovely about that leaning that he had, leaning on her, is that this was this beautiful dependency that I could see in them. That this wasn't something that he was ashamed of. And this wasn't something that she was holding power over him and making him feel weak in that. She was giving him strength as he leaned on her and they walked through there. And it was just a moment I pointed out to my son and we just talked about how beautiful that was. And I hope he has a love story like that someday. And, you know, this is what we're learning from this. And as we look at verse 5 here in chapter 8, it says, friends is the title of this section. It says friends. And then the verse is, who is this coming up from the wilderness 
leaning on her beloved. He is leaning on her. He is relying on her. And the image here, when we talk about our friendships, our relationships, this again is this love story in the Bible, but this applies to all relationships. This applies to friendship. This applies to our other family relationships and our neighbor relationships. And I think of this idea that we teach in our marriage seminars called functional dependency. We fear being codependent? Are we overly reliant? Are we in a dysfunctional bond? And um, in, in, in the other end of the extreme in our society, we're taught to be self-sufficient. We're taught to be independent. Don't rely on anyone else. That's burdening. That's bad. And yet what we're supposed to do, what we're created to do, what we're hardwired for is reliance on other human beings. And this term that we put to is this functional dependency that says, I need you and you need me. And it makes me think of a time when I had the flu. Four kids at home, mom has the flu, Scott's out of town. Woohoo! That makes for a really fun time. Where was I? Like I have no or idea. Something? I was like... <laughs> It wasn't a fun, I, no, he, he would have been home if he was golfing. Um, but I was alone taking care of my kids, and my good friend Nina uh, got word that I wasn't feeling well. Busy mom too, three kids, career, she has a lot going on, and she said, let me bring your kids dinner. Let me bring food for your kids. I know you're not feeling good, but, you know, I know they're kind of fending for themselves right now, so let me bring them some food. And I said, yes, please, thank you. And when she came, I literally broke into tears because I thought, and she, and she brought takeout, you guys. She didn't slave over the stove. She didn't have to make a big fuss over it. She brought good food, and my kids were grateful. And this mama was so grateful to have that meal provided. And, and I love to do that for friends as well. And I also think of, you know, it doesn't have to just be the, the service work. I get migraines. I get awful migraines that send me to the ER sometimes. And I was in the ER one evening, and I had to drive myself because our kids would have been home alone. So Scott stayed home with our kids, and I reached out to some prayer friends, some warrior friends that pray for me when I am suffering. And I just sent out, could you pray for me that I'll feel better? Two of those friends showed up at the hospital, and the one that needed to stay home with her kids prayed for me from home. And those two sat with me, and they held my hands, and I felt the prayers of the friend that couldn't be there with me. And I felt better before I ever received the medicine as they were sitting with me and serving me and holding my hands. Now, you know what I could have said? No, you're too busy. This is a burden. Don't come. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need that, right? But I did. I did need that. And this is this functional dependency we can rely on. Let me tell you this. Don't keep track. It's not about keeping track. We give and we receive when we're capable of giving and when we need to receive. And this is this idea of love being something that we can lean on with each other. And when with this is this idea of commitment, this commitment that I'm describing that Scott will describe in this next posture. Yeah, and the love leans. I mean, it's like if we're at camp, I'd say, grab somebody, lean on me. You know, we're like, <laughs> so let's sing it, right? Like, but we need each other. We started the church seven years ago. Be the church. It's not a place we go. It's a people, and it's hard because we're self-reliant. But if you don't tell people that you're hurting, how can, how can you lean on them? Mm -hmm. Like, you have to be vulnerable. We have friends even in this room. Like, man, I'm going through a thing right now. We found out at camp out. Oh, my friend, you know, struggling this thing. They were praying with them already and figuring out ways to come around them. We need each other. Friends, we need each other. We need Jesus. We need each other. Healthy love leans. But, like Heather said, if you're going to lean, you have to trust that you're going to be caught. And that's the second point of our outline, that healthy Christian love is grounded in 
commitment, that love commits. Look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 8. There's this commitment here. Under the apple, oh, I'm sorry, place me, she says, place me like a seal over your heart, place me like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, and jealousy is yielding as the grave. It burns like fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Healthy love knows commitment. Now, if you look at this Hebrew poetry, Heather's going to unpack verse 6 for us in just a moment, but there's these parallel images where love is as strong as death in the grave and the fire and the flame and waters quenching love or can't quench love and rivers cannot sweep it away. There's this parallel structure to say love is powerful and, and God's radically committed to us, radically for us. And you see this flame here. It burns like fire, like a mighty flame. Now, in the Old Testament, they knew God's presence as flame, the Shekinah glory. Is that Israel, as is, the is, Israelis were heading to the promised land, and God said, I'll go before you as a, as a flame and as a cloud. I'll go before you and behind you, and you'll move when I move. They knew God's presence was like a flame and like this passion that would burn. And God says, I will be for you, and you will never be without my presence. Now, in Isaiah 43, the prophet Isaiah says this, when you pass through the waters, I will not forsake you. There's this beautiful language there that waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. Here the fire, the flame of God's love and the way we're called to love one another is so powerful that even water cannot extinguish it. And it's meant to just be awakening this passion in us that the healthy Christian love is grounded in, in commitment. And look at the end of verse 7. There's this powerful description. It's almost like a description of grace. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be scorned. What, what does that mean? It means that if you tried to buy love, if you said, I want some of that kind of glory, I'm just going to try to artificially create it, I'm just going to put down something materialistic. No, it would be scorned. Because the love of God has for us in the grace of Jesus Christ cannot be bought, it could only be accepted. It cannot be purchased, it can only be received. And so that we get to be recipients of God's grace each and every day. Yes, I became a Christian back then. No, today, Jesus, I want to be more like you today. I want to say yes to this, to this flame of your radical commitment for me. And then I want to be shaped in a horizontal status. That I want this love, this radical, blazing commitment to actually shape the way that I'm committed to other people. That, I, that, that nothing's going to come between us. And if you're single this morning, you say, that's the kind of relationship I, I want to be ready for. I'm going to prepare my heart for. I'm going to be so devoted to Jesus, knowing his love, that when I'm ready for a relationship, then, then I'll have the tools at my disposal. Well, I will know this, this radical commitment of Jesus' love. And if you're married, friends, this morning, if you, if you have a ring on this morning, I want to just remind you, the radical Christian love is grounded, not in emotion that comes and goes, but in commitment. It says, like the old couple at Costco, you can lean on me, and, and when you're hurting, I will be there for you. And we don't do this perfectly. No one in the room. Only Jesus is perfect, but we're called to be grounded in commitment. Absolutely. If we look back at verse 6 here, we look at this way, this, this why, this how of it. You know, this isn't just kind of fluffy romantic language. This is very practical stuff that we can look at and say, I can do that. And there's something we can do here. In verse 6, it says, place me like a seal over your heart. 
like a seal on your arm. Now, this, this imagery of the seal, back in that time, there was a unique seal that each person had. They would mark their letter with that. You know you can trust that this is a word from me. And so this imagery of, I have marked your heart. I have impacted you. You have changed me because your seal is on my heart. And this is how we can look at this. And then it goes on to say, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. I just love the passion in that, that our love for each other is to be fierce. When I told you about those women in my life, I tell you that I love those women fiercely. And I would do anything for them. And that's the way we're supposed to be in relationship with each other. And not because they've done something for me, but because we are committed to a bond that we will be there for one another when we need each other. And the bond is fierce, my friends, because we've cultivated it, because we've chosen it, because we've acted when each other has needed us. And it's not perfect and we mess up all the time and we can never fully satisfy the needs of another human being. And we will not do it with perfection, but we can stay fierce and we can stay committed and that's our part. When I sit with couples, I start with an assessment often of where they're at. They'll come in and say, we need some help. And I'll start by saying often, where are you at from 1 to 10 on your hope that things can get better? 1 to 10. You know, and some will come in and they'll say, I'm at a 10 and that's why I'm here. Because I have hope that we can get better. Or oftentimes I'll hear, I'm at a 1. Things are really hard and I'm starting to lose my hope. And then I'll follow up with this question. I'll say, okay, I know where you're at hope-wise. Where are you at commitment-wise? How committed are you to making this happen, to doing the hard work of working these things out? And I get a range there too. Here we have, my friends, our part, our work is our commitment because our emotions come and go and we have hard days and we have bad days and we mess it up all the time. And I don't always feel in love with him. And I'm sure and I know that I'm not always very lovable. And that can come and it can go and we can have hard days and we can go through hard things. But when we are committed, when we say I will commit and not just in word and not just because it's a contract but because it's a covenant. Because it says I will give to you and I will serve you and I will be there for you forever. And I know you will mess up and I know I will mess up. But I am committed to the action of being there for you. And again, this isn't a keeping track. It's 100%, 100%, not 50-50. Because a contract says, you give to me and I'll give to you. And you had me over for dinner. Well, I owe you. Will you watch my kids? Well, I owe you. It's not like that. It's a covenant. When you need me, I'm going to give everything I can give. And when I need you, I'm going to be humble enough to receive because we're designed to be that way and that's how this commitment grows. I love that. There's no hope without commitment. You say, well, I'm hoping things change, but are you grounded in commitment? Are you, are you radically for each other in every season? Christian marriage, Christian relationship forged in commitment. Recently, I got to do a memorial. I don't do a ton of memorials uh, in Linwood Cemetery and uh, it, was, it was very moving. It's my mom's uncle, which makes him a distant relative, but a good man. I uh, was married to the same woman for over 50 years, uh, and as she got sick and got Alzheimer's, she went to a home where she was under 24-hour care, and for 10 years, he went 
faithfully multiple times a week without fail the routine and go and just sit with her even though she at the end didn't even know him and they would play games or just he would speak to her and then she passed and he didn't take his ring off and this man Clancy is, is in the, he got in the final days of his life here in the last couple of months they said you know dad you know you're starting to you know we're kind of getting ready for the end can we take your ring off he said no this ring has stayed on for 60 years there's no way you're going to take it off until my heart stops beating. Because he knew that his life was forged in this commitment to a wife not even alive anymore. But that testimony, friends, to get up at his memorial and, and to preach and have people talk about the legacy now being lived on in his kids and grandkids. Again, nobody being asked to do it perfectly, but Christian love, this posture of commitment. Let's take a look at the third posture, that love Heals. And to this, I want to look at this complicated text from chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, that love has the power actually to heal, to bring a healing bit to, to broken hearts. Now, I'm going to look at the verse 8 and 9. I'll read it for you. If you have your Bibles, follow along. There's a, other characters introduced into chapter 8. There's a chorus, or there's earlier in the, book, uh, in, the, in the book, we said maybe it was a harem. This actually is some male friends who are speaking now to the protagonist, our main character, who's a woman. You know, Song of Solomon, the main character is a woman. A woman speaks in Song of Solomon more than men. And, and now these men say, verse 8 and 9, we have a little sister. Scholars are, are kind of confused. Do they actually have a sister? Or are they trying to kind of put something on our protagonist? We don't know that, but they, let me continue. They say, we have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What should we do for our sister on the day she's spoken for? If she's a wall, we'll build towers of silver on her. If she's a door, we'll enclose her with panels of cedar. They're trying to, to, this is not protection. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that we need to be radically protecting the people that we love, our most vulnerable, our young boys, our young girls. We're saying, no, it ends. The prostitution on Aurora, it ends. We speak out against people being marginalized. This isn't, these men are not trying to protect their little sister. Don't hear that. No, they're trying to control and they're trying to wrap up her body, and they're saying, you know, we're going to kind of cloister away, and we want, to, we want to kind of protect her from anything that might harm her, but we're also just going to kind of lord over power and kind of speak for this woman. Now, that would have been consistent with culture 3,500 years ago, but the woman is given such power and autonomy in Song of Solomon. And watch what she says in chapter 10. They're saying, hey, we want to we want to wrap the women up. We want to cover them up. We want to protect the beauty. And then she says this incredible line in verse 10. So if we look at verse 10, we see that this woman has her own inner strength and her own dignity. And she says it here in these words by saying, no, I am a wall. I, or I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. Thus, I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Now, reading that before doing some of this research with Scott, I'm like, oh, what is, what is going on here? You know, as we were first looking at this and studying this, I said, Wait, what is this about? Like, my breasts are towers? That's weird. And this wall thing, I don't get it. And so as we looked into what the meaning of this is, is what this is talking about, is she's saying, let me remind you, I have an inner strength. I know who I am. And I have this purity driven from inside of me that is protective that is making a good choice here. I know who I am pursuing, who I am choosing in this relationship. Now, something that Jewish culture did well, that this is our roots here, is they lifted up women as the leader in the sexual arrangement, in sexuality and in sexual pursuit. A woman was to take the lead and to be seen as the one to pursue the sexual bond. Now, we've skewed that too in our culture. We've objectified women. The ways that we look at 
that uh, the problems in our society around sexuality are rooted in this sort of upheaval that we have going on. Now here in Song of Solomon, we see her as this dignified woman, as this woman who knew her strength, who knew how to make wise choices, who maintained her purity but absolutely pursued her passion and pursued her lover here. And in this, you are seeing her speak to that. And you know what she gives him? You know what she brings to him? She brings him shalom. She brings him peace. This word is a profound word in the Bible that is used 240 times. This is a gift. This is this beautiful gift of connection. When I have peace in our bond, when I have shalom that we are good, oh my gosh, can I go out and conquer the world? Can I feel that sense of inner strength? Now, is it Scott? It's Scott grounded in his faith, me grounded in my faith, and our commitment to this union that we can bring shalom from one another. God gives us this vision here of this kind of bond, and we get to live into it, and we get to seek to bring this shalom, this peace, this connection to one another out of our commitment to our bond to one another. Yeah, verse 10 is a beautiful verse. In his eyes, I'm like one bringing contentment, or in Hebrew, like Heather said, shalom. But that's what we get to do in healthy relationship, and we actually get a chance to to give each other strength and heal each other. And she goes on in, in verse 11 and 12, setting up a contrast. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman. He led his vineyard to tenants. It's a fancy vineyard. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my vineyard is mine to give, she says. Another metaphor and image of her strength, her autonomy, her ability to kind of speak up for herself because she has this healthy love relationship. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. 200 are for those who tend its fruit. No, she says love is, we have an opportunity to be vulnerable and to say, hey, I, I will be part of making you feel peace and bringing contentment. And, and in that, I can give you the healing you desire. I can give you strength. Mm-hmm. And as you seek to do that, as we honor Christ alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as we shift into this uh, next posture, we have this uh, idea that love heals us. When we think about how, um, you know, we are in bonds with one another, there's this really amazing research study. If you've been in any of our marriage classes, you have heard this. And if you have been in counseling, I share this with most of the counseling couples that I've worked with. Um, but this is a story of research that really influences this work, that comes from this work. This doesn't influence the work. This is influencing this research. So let me tell you. It starts with this idea that there's... Um, you feel pain in your body and what is it like to be in relationship with pain and so what they did is they brought couples in who were in distress and they put them in an fMRI machine so magnetic resonance imaging of the brain and what they did is they caused pain in their body they said we want to see how pain works in, 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 in relation to relationships and so they shocked the toes of the person who was in the fMRI machine to see what pain looked like in the brain. And so they looked at the imaging and it said, oh yeah, it lights up like a Christmas tree. There's the pain areas of your brain. Um, isn't that interesting? You know, psychological research, shocking. I don't know. They, they, they do these little funny things. So they use the shock that your brain shows pain and then they bring in the partner and they brought in partners who said, we're not doing good. Yeah, we'll participate in your research study because we're struggling. And so let's see how this works, this um, emotion-focused therapy research. And so they brought in a partner and they were distressed partners and the partner would come in and they say, okay, you know, when you, f- you feel better when you have somebody holding your hand, right? Like I take my kids to the doctor and they get their shots and we'll, we'll hold their hands, you know, and they feel a bit better and so you bring in the partner and the partner holds the hand and they shock the toes and the brain lines up exponentially more in physical pain because the distressed partner is with them 
And so they take them and they do some emotion-focused therapy with them. They reconnect them through their bond. They teach them how to forgive. They work through forgiveness issues and reconciliation and redemption, and they make sure that they feel solid, that no matter what the problem is, the budget, the in-laws, the sex, the money, whatever, you can accomplish any resolution together because the bond is tight. And so they bring those partners back in. They put them in the fMRI machine and they shock the toes. Yep, pain still shows up. You are in pain when you get shocked. And then they bring the partner in and the partner comes in to hold the hand of the person. They feel close, they feel bonded. And they shock the toes and there's barely a light on the screen. There's barely an image of pain. Physical, felt, shocking pain is happening to this person's body. And because they have a beloved other who they know is with them, who they know will protect them, who will be with them, who will sacrifice for them, who will forgive them on their awful days, they do not feel the physical pain. We can buffer each other. We can heal each other by being in these good, bonded, covenant relationships with one another. When I sat in the hospital room and my dear friends were holding my hand and my friend was out praying for me and before I received any medication, I felt this presence. And it is God who makes us this way. So wonderful that we have these scientists and researchers out there that the rest of the world can say, that's really cool. And we get to the look at, at the Bible and say, that's really cool because he made us that way and we get to rejoice in that. That was amazing. Um, yesterday, we had this worship service over at the junction to people getting methadone on, on Aurora. And we sang worship songs, and Leif preached a message of the gospel. Someone shared uh, being transformed from addiction. We made hot pancakes out there. And then we uh, asked people if they wanted to wash their feet. I'll tell you the rest of the story later, because honestly, I'll just cry my way through it. But I want to tell you this. I, um, uh, God asked me to wash someone's feet. I tried my best to avoid the call like Jonah. I'll tell you more of the story later. But then God is God, and I end up washing this person's foot. And it was remarkable, and it was so intimate. And then I'm driving home, and the Spirit convicts me. That's great. You showed the love of Jesus to people on Aurora. That's great. But if you're not taking that same posture in your home, to, that the person who knows you best would see that you're serving them and loving them, that your kids would feel like you're accessible to them and serving them, then, then the, the witness is hollow, okay? Friends, the ones that know us the best should see our hearts, and, and we need to be there to, to help heal one another and say, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be holding your hand in the midst of the machine, and we struggle with this sometimes because sometimes I'm out doing stuff for others or I'm out running a million miles an hour, and Heather's like, I need you to see me. I need you to help be there. I need someone just to be present, and this is the healing power of love. And so it's a mantra that an author shared or in a book, and I've been just kind of sharing it with people that I mentor, but it's this. I want to be a hero in my own home. That, that, that my love of Jesus, his love of me, would change the way that the people closest to me say their love is real because they love me well. Love heals. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at the final point of our outline. Love awaits. These are the final two verses of this book. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, phew, I'm ready for our next series. So we've really been digging in. Let's look at two verses. I'll do 13, the, the uh, voice of the male. Heather, do verse 14. It, it's this awaiting. There's a, a kind of waiting. It's, a, it's a, the stop of the narrative. It's a little unclear what's happening, but he's pursuing here. Look at verse 13. He says to her, you who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. Let, let, me, let, me, let me see you. I want to be with you. It's not, 
I mean, we had that other stuff earlier in the book where there was climbing of trees and tasting fruit and getting all crazy. No, this is just, I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I want to be available to you. I want to pursue you. Mm-hmm. In 18 years, mm-hmm. honestly, this is something that I really work on at times. I need to work on at times. Mm-hmm. I get busy. I get distracted. I was like, yeah, you're not seeking my voice. Like, you're there for others. Are you there for me? And I have to kind of like, all right, and repent and try to do better because the one that knows me the, the most should feel my love the most, that the witness would be strong. Let me hear your voice. It's not sexual here. It's all romantic. And it's just built on affection. And he's saying, healthy love awaits there's a pursuit. Like, I'm going to go after you, not just so we can, you know, have sex or not just because of this or that. No, in our marriage, I'm going to pursue you because God has called me to a godly relationship that I would receive his love and I would bring it to bear in our relationship. Love pursues and it's awaiting here in his voice. And then she says. And then if we look at verse 14, she comes in at these last lines, which is interesting. She was the first to speak in the Song of Solomon and she's the last to speak. Her voice is so important in this book. And she says, come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Dun-dun-dun. What comes next? We don't know. It's a cliffhanger. She says, come with me on this adventure. Where are they going? What are they going to do next? What happens in this love story? We don't know. But this is the great love story that we are beckoned into. These are the stories we're even drawn to as a culture when we look at who saw La La Land. Anybody see La La Land in here? We, this is the cliffhanger. This is the, whoa, that's a different ending. What's going to happen next? I didn't think it would turn out that way. These are the movies that go to the Oscars now because we say those are good stories because that's real. That's real when we don't know what's going to happen next, when there's this cliffhanger. But why? When we think about the why of this, um, it takes me back to my early studies at Fuller Seminary. I actually pursued a Master's of Divinity degree for two years before I felt called to do my marriage and family therapy degree. And in that time, I, I had the pleasure of learning from the late Dr. Ray Anderson. And in my systematic theology classes, I remember learning this concept of the already, not yet. And this idea that God's kingdom is here and it is now and we can live into it with hope. But there's also the not yet. There's those situations in our lives where hurt continues, where pain continues, where we don't understand and we cry out to God and say, why? Why does it have to be difficult? Why can't the healing happen? We're praying. We're doing everything we can and still it hurts. Can we hold on to the hope of the story that is not yet? We're wired for it. God is beckoning us to it, just like this woman is beckoning her lover. Come with me. There is a longer story here. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen next, but it's good, and you can trust me. Remember, I'm your shalom. I am your peace. You can be with me in this. Come with me and seek me out. And this holy longing of, in the space of not knowing, is okay, and it is good, and it is how we are made. And this is where our faith is forged in this idea that love awaits. And in that awaiting, we can hold on to this hope. This is profoundly hopeful because it's profoundly real. And it's easy to imagine Mm. other people's relationship is easier than our own. The reality of human relationship is more about longing than fulfillment, right? It's more about longing than fulfillment. And that's what keeps us engaged and saying, hey, we're not broken because we struggle. We're not broken because we get off 
track sometimes, but we're going to continue to pursue love, and love awaits. And you think about the scriptures, the way that the Revelation ends. In Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give God the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready, the church. There's this waiting, this ex- expectation. It's like, hey, we're ready. And then the words of John, John the Beloved again, the final words there of Revelation. John says, come, Lord Jesus, come. Love awaits, and it's hopeful. And while we live in the already, not yet, we say, I will receive your love, Jesus, each and every day. And Lord Jesus, help me have better relationships that I'm modeling this love to the people that know me best. Come, Lord Jesus. May our, may our love stories be just confident in expectation because love awaits. Eight years ago, we started this church, Bethany North. We took a risk and we said yes. And Scott said yes to the call to be a pastor. Eight years ago, as we began this church, with 10 months after, I had given birth to a full-term 8-pound, 12-ounce baby who was no longer living. I was a wreck. I wasn't healed. I was grieving. And I was eight months pregnant with a new baby that I didn't know would live. I didn't know what would happen. And I had two little toddlers in tow. And I was kind of a mess. (laughs) And we started this church And we moved two more times to be closer to this community. And we, in the last eight years, have probably had some of our most awful fights in our entire marriage. I show up often to this church in my church clothes. And I'm hurting. And I'm going through something hard. And I don't show up in my church clothes and my lipstick to fake anything at all. But because I need to hear the word of Christ. And I need to gather with my people. And I will tell you... I was terrified to be a pastor's wife. We don't have it all together. Aren't those pastors' families supposed to have it all together? Aren't they supposed to look perfect and everyone's going to criticize us if we don't? I just want to hide. I want you to do your call. I absolutely believe in it. Can I just hide for a little while? And so I tell you this because we look at Scripture regularly. We look to these tools that I teach people in therapy because we need them all the time. We look at these postures, and I love this image of posturing. We posture ourselves, which means we shape our bodies. We move our bodies into these four things and more. We lean into each other. We depend on each other. We commit. We do the hard work. I do not say this to say, we have it all together, and we have the formula, and just watch us. No, we come on our knees begging for God to give us the tools. But you know what we do? We commit to doing the work. We look again and we say, how does this go again? How do I forgive you? How do I fight for connection? When you're off in the world loving everybody else but me, how do I say, love me? And when I'm being an awful person and I need to say, I'm so sorry, I need to do that. We do the work that is in this guidebook and it gives us the strength to endure the hard things of life. And it gives us the endurance to stay together. I hope someday I am that couple that is holding his arm or he's holding mine. And we have stayed strong together because that is the great love story that we have. It is profoundly hopeful because we hold on to this idea that we are being beckoned into a greater love story. And I will follow. Good word. Thanks. So let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day, for this time, for these people who are here in this room, who represents a world 
of hurting people, of longing people, of those that want to love well. I know full well that everyone in this room wants to love you well and love others well. And so my prayer today is that we can all feel filled up by your great love story, that you can empower us to go out into the world to be the people you've made us to be, genuine in our ability to care for and love one another well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You stand with us as we close in song. One song to be reminded. The power is not even in us, human relationship. It's all about the power of the cross. As always, there's some prayer people down front. If you would like to pray or just even as you worship in your seat, be reminded there is an anchor, Jesus Christ, who we worship now.